what it's like to lose a big piece of yourself, but yet still be here. Title of the chapter, it's the same, but different. Opening quote, enlightenment must come little by little, otherwise it would overwhelm. Idris Shah, author. How are you feeling, Sandra asks. It's been a couple of weeks since we last met. You were on this great high the last time we spoke, and then you crashed. Yes, my body crashed and I slept hard. For two days I was useless. It's cool, though, because my perception is still completely changed. I just used up all of my energy. I don't know if it was excitement or processing or what. I don't know, but I've really been dead. Dead? She raises her eyebrows. Physically speaking, yes. Exhausted. Some traditions talk about epiphanies or spiritual insights as being the release of stagnant energy which allows you to flow into a new level of understanding. In that sense, your awakening freed up a lot of energy, she says. Maybe you've been overbuoyant for a while and have now come back down to a more normal level of energy. This might seem like a collapse because you've been on an artificial high. So my natural state is tired. That's what you're telling me, I laugh. Your energy level is a lot lower than it was the last time I saw you. Let's just leave it like that. I find this to be a perfect segue. An old friend recently called me out of the blue for an impromptu visit. She's also a yoga teacher and on her own journey as well. She's trying to wake up. I only got to see her for 35 minutes before she left for the airport, but it was interesting because she's having similar experiences right now. As I started to describe what had happened to me with Maya last year, she cut me off and then continued the sentence because she had had the same exact experience in her own process. Only difference was that her vision, perception, didn't stick. She had an awakening, but the impact of that is not a constant. With me now, everything I see is Maya. It's clear as crystal. Why do you think that is, Sandra asks, that the change perception sticks with some people, but not with others? I don't know. It could just be that she's still breaking through more things. I guess it didn't really stick for me when it happened for the first time either. It threw me for a loop, but it resonated as if I had only seen the concept. It didn't really affect my full vision while I was processing. It was as if it stepped away from it, oh, I stepped away from it, to allow the processing to happen. I think for a moment. As I said before, I have to do everything at least twice to get it right. Maybe the same thing is to be said for visualizations linked to Maya. Sandra frowns. You just talked about visualization, and visualization is something different from a vision. Are you making that distinction or not? A vision seems to come from outside and appears before you. It has its own life, whereas a visualization, for me at least, is where you think about creating something visual in your mind and exploring it. You were the one generating it. I'm talking in the language of my new visual spectrum, I say. A visualization is combined with a deep understanding, a paradigm shift in my mind. It's like a punch to my brain, my consciousness, whatever you want to call it. As I get a sensation, I have a specific thought, and at the same time, I get a vision, and my brain finally understands what it is I've been focusing on, the breakthrough, if you will. I'm a very visual person, so my thought processes are visual too. For example, 
When I first had a vision of consciousness, I think I drew it for you. The vision of Maya was similar because that's what was holding all consciousness in one place, like a layer around all things known. As I did that initial drawing, I remember little pieces would pop out. Pop out, Sandra asks? How? Pop out like strong bursts, shooting out, away from the center, only to be pulled back in. Waking up is your little piece popping out and breaking through Maya, so that you can actually turn around and observe everything consciously. We contemplate my scribble for a moment. That's my visual spectrum, I continue. That's how I see Maya and consciousness completely intertwined. Maya is like a sheath over reality, and that makes perfect sense to me now, but only because I've experienced it and have seen it with my own eyes or mind. With my, whatever you want to call it, my vision, I laugh. Actually, I don't know what to call it yet. You said your vision or your consciousness punched through the sheath that it was Maya so you could turn back and observe? She asks. I nod. So from where you are now, you're back to looking there. Oh, you're back to the, yo, sorry, 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 sorry. So from where you are now, she says, you're back to looking. There is a sense of, of observing and looking as opposed to acting. Is that right? Life now, I say, is like watching a show. I'm the spectator and the show is my life. I see the character Jason, but I'm no longer him. And if you want something to happen, say, this book to develop, then you just... She struggles to find words, then shrugs. Well, what do you do? My wants are not like that. I don't have big wants. It's not... It's, it's more that I've become so present and aware of what's going on around me that I sort of see where things are going, and I just encourage them. The book we're working on, it's not a huge, I want this. No. It started to unfold, and I kept following the trail. So, in a sense, that state of observation is a state of equanimity or something, she says. There is no positive desire one way or the other. There's just a, oh, let's see what this does, or oh, that pathway is lighting up, like a game almost. Exactly. That's exactly what it is, and you can play along. When you fight back or try to control it, everything stops. If you have egotistical wants, like material things, it's not like you can just make those things happen. But my wants are in the trajectory of where I see my life going, so I try to fine-tune it along the way. Encourage it to keep going. A little push here, a little follow-up there. In that trajectory, is that like your spiritual path, your destiny, or your karma, she asks? Do you see it like that? Or is it just where you are and what's unfolding as you become aware of it? I, personally, don't believe in karma anymore, I say. I did, but the more I'm having this experience, the more I realize that it's like an excuse for something happening. Karma only exists as an idea to help you reflect on where you are and how you got there. Going back to this notion of the trajectory of your life, Sandra says, so it's not karma, not a spiritual path, not destiny, or soul learning. Do any of those ideas ever resonate with you now? Do you work with any of those concepts? No, I say, and we both laugh again. Okay, she continues. Because what I come back to often in our conversation is this idea of waking up and realizing you're all alone on a rock hurtling through space. If that's the case, if there is no reason for that, no bigger picture, then there's no reason to do anything or to not do anything. There's no reason to even continue. 
Some people have this sort of awakening experience, I say, and then they just go back to how they were before. Well, they probably go back to life as they knew it, because it's pretty confronting, she says. I mean, what do you do with a vision of reality like that? That's my question. If you're sitting on your rock, hurtling through space on your own, why are you there? Why are you here? I don't know. I don't either, I laugh. All I know is that I'm conscious of this experience. I don't know why. Sandra bites her lip. She's not sure about this. And who wants to know anyway, I say? The false self? It doesn't exist. If the false self wants to know something, it's to have one more thing to hold on to, because that will make it seem more real. Doesn't that depress you, Sandra asks? When I had my first really powerful realization of you are alone in every sort of way you can grasp loneliness, this is a solo experience, completely, completely solo, I got very depressed. A lot of us rely on human relationships, emotion, and contact to keep us up, to keep us going, to give us something to live for. It's to animate the ego. When you realize that you're actually alone, it's tough. All that we thought we were living for is only energy flowing. People represent different spectrums of the energetic flow, and they're also just reflections of yourself, or your idea of yourself. In fact, I fell into a deep depression, but not for long, only a couple of weeks. But during that time, I didn't leave the house. I was like, what's the fucking point? But the reality of the situation is that even when you get that far in your realization process, you're still here, and there is nothing you can do about it. So, if you're planning to stick around, you have to settle back in. Sandra sighs. In some of the traditions I've worked with, if you have any sort of mental instability, she says, if you're on medication or you've had heavy hallucinogenic experiences, they won't touch you. They say that you're already unstable. And if they take you any further down your path, you're likely to become more so as you realize everything you thought was real solid in that you could rely on isn't that way at all. By implication, any sense of awakening to the truth to a greater reality can lead to implosion, annihilation, self-destruction. The way you describe your awakening process seems to echo the idea that we, as humans, are not so well equipped to handle the nature of reality. So what I'm wondering is, what drives us? What drives the will to continue living in the face of understanding that there is no point to it? I have to think that over. Sometimes I can feel an answer is coming, the gears are turning, but I don't know how long it will take for the words to form. Another time, answers come like a flow of running water. It's a big question, she says, smiling. You don't have to answer it right now. No, no, I'm processing, I say. Sometimes I have to wait and just let things settle to see. Why is it like this with humans? I don't know. A dog never questions its nature. Animals never question their nature, at least not as far as we know. They don't generally commit suicide, she says. Dolphins do, I say, and sometimes in groups. Do they, she says? How interesting. Well, most animals, as far as I know, rarely stop living by choice. Even in the most dire of circumstances, they fight to survive. So what makes us so different? And how much of that difference is linked to Maya? She thinks for a moment. I'm also interested in what you were saying about relationships. It's true, life is a solo experience, but a lot of people are clinging to others because it makes it easier for them to continue or because they like it that way. But a lot of the drama that I see playing out in the lives of people who come into my practice is actually drama around other people. Their job is fine, their health is fine, things are fine. Then they get into conflict with someone else. 
Humans like drama, I say. That's clear. Why is that, she asks. Fear. Honestly. And I think I've said this before. I see fear in almost everybody's eyes. The more distracted people can become from the reality that their existence is ultimately meaningless, the easier it is. So that's it? She asks. We use all the drama as a distraction? We feed fuel to the drama that is our life, I say. That is Maya. Maya is drama. And drama has you pumped up on adrenaline and cortisone, and if you're running on those stress hormones, I'm wondering if you feel temporarily more alive, she says. I'm starting to wonder how much drama is about distraction, and how much it is a quest to feel more alive, for life to really matter for a moment. It's both, I say. If you're completely convinced that you and your ego are real, why would you go looking for something else?